Praise the Lord. Thank you, Pastor Tim. If you have your Bibles, and I sure hope that you do, we're here to worship God through the proclamation of His Word, and I would invite you to turn in your Bible to the book of Acts. We'll pick up where we left off last Sunday, and uh, looking at chapter 9 this week. In a recent broadcast by Pastor Evangelist Greg Laurie, he was interviewing a very interesting man, a gentleman by the name, <clears throat> excuse me, of Michael Franzese. Uh, he was a former high-ranking member of one of New York's most violent and ruthless crime families. At one point in his career as a mobster, he was bringing in anywhere from 5 to $8 million a week through legal and illegal channels to fund the criminal activities of the mob. So, so notorious was Michael Franzese that there were 14 different law enforcement agencies working together to try to bring him down. And eventually they did. He was imprisoned. And yet it was during this time that he was imprisoned for his crimes where he spent most of his time in solitary confinement, that God intersected his life. A prison guard slid a Bible through the food slot in his door. Michael Francis said, well, in solitary confinement, you have a whole lot of time to do nothing. And so he started reading that Bible. And it wasn't long before God's Spirit began to speak to his heart. He shared in his testimony how in that small, confined, dark, lonely, solitary confinement cell, God's Spirit began to work in convicting him of the wretchedness of his life of violence and crime. God began to continue to work in his heart to the point that he chose to pray to receive Jesus Christ as his Lord and Savior. Not only did the Lord confront him in that unlikely setting, but the Lord converted him wonderfully, miraculously, transformed him from being a terrible, violent, criminal, lost sinner to becoming a child of God. Not only that, but he goes on to share how after he got out of prison, despite threats by the mob to kill him, to shut him up, he was determined he was going to use his experience to further the cause of Christ, to share the good news of the gospel. And needless to say, Michael Franzese, by the power of the grace of God and the wonderful life-transforming truth of the gospel, he's not the man that he used to be. You know, I shared earlier John Newton's testimony and what a wonderful, radical change God brought in his life upon hearing the gospel. And Michael Francis likewise. And as we go further in the, in the book of Acts, the Acts of the Apostles, you're going to see God do yet another, probably one of the most radical transformations of conversion in the history of the church. You may recall last week as we were looking at chapter 8 how God is raising up His champions of faith 
through men like Stephen, who became the church's first martyr. He was a Hellenist, Greek-based, if you would, a background Christian. But then there was also another champion that God was raising up among that fabulous seven that the church appointed to be servants in the church. There was a, a man by the name of Philip that we saw God use powerfully in preaching the good news of the gospel and sparking a, a great spiritual awakening throughout Samaria. And, and even through that wonderful story of the conversion of the Ethiopian eunuch. Now, just like Satan, just as God is doing his great work through his appointed servants, Satan is raising up his own champion of sorts. He's raising up a man by the name of Saul of Tarsus. Saul is a Roman citizen, but he's also a Jew. Not just a Jew, he's a Pharisee. He tells us in his testimonies, and you may want to, in addition to marking your place in chapter 9, you may want to earmark... Chapter 22, chapter 26, because you see Paul telling his story over and over how it was that God intersected his life. He was a a Pharisee of Pharisees. He sat at the feet of one of the most prominent Jewish scholars, Gamaliel. He was high, Paul or Saul was highly respected in his capacity as a teacher and and a scholar of the law. And yet that was not the only thing he was known for because we see God beginning to, or or you see Satan beginning to use Saul of Tarsus as an instrument of persecution to bring persecution against this new church, this new movement of Jesus Christ called the way. And and Paul is, is energized by Satan to do the diabolical work of trying to stamp out this movement before it spreads. But it's spreading and so now he's moving forward to persecute the church. And so I want you to go with me into chapter 9 this morning. And I want you to understand that God has a process whereby he works a marvelous and a miraculous work in the lives of sinners. Lost, wretched, depraved, unworthy, hell-bound sinners. Like Saul of Tarsus, like Charlie Martin, like you. And so the first thing we'll be looking at in chapter 9 is, I just simply call it Saul's confrontation. Because Saul's on a mission, there's no doubt about it. In chapter 9, verse 1, it says, Then Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked letters from him to the synagogues of Damascus, so that if he found any who were of the way, and that's what they call Christianity at that time, simply because Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. That he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. If you remember back in chapter 8, in verse 3, it says, As for Saul, he made havoc of the church, entering every house and dragging off men and women, committing them to prison. He was wreaking havoc. He was ripping the church. It's a very violent verb that, that Luke uses there to help you to understand Paul wasn't simply showing up at the doorsteps of these house churches and saying, now you folks, if you don't cut this out. Oh no! He went in and he was tearing the place apart. 
dragging men and women into prison and, and bringing them before the, the Sanhedrin to be tried and, and possibly executed. Listen, he had one goal in mind, and that was to absolutely destroy the church and eliminate the name of Jesus Christ from the face of the earth forever, once and for all. And so back in chapter 9, verse 1 and 2, we see that he is going to get the authorization, if you will, from the Sanhedrin, the ruling Jewish body, that would authorize him to carry this letter wherever he went throughout the kingdom at that time to arrest Christians. Listen, Paul, Saul's murderous intent, as I said, was to destroy the church. He was a man on a murderous mission. He was breathing, breathing threats. Every day he got up, he was thinking about that. He was driven by religious zeal. Unfortunately, it was, it was a false religion. It was a faulty religion. It was Judaism of the day that was heaped in, in legalism and knew nothing of the one true living God. And yet Saul was steeped in this. He was zealous for this. As I said in chapter 22, holding your place in chapter 9, Paul in his testimony before the Jewish people who had arrested him at that time, later in the book of Acts, in Acts chapter 22, Paul is testifying to, to the Jews. Now he's a Christian at this point, but he's trying to help them to see this great transformation that came over and that he was no, no renegade. He was actually a faithful Jew. He says, I am indeed a Jew born in Tarsus of Cilicia, but brought up in this city at the feet of Gamaliel, taught according to the strictness of our father's law and was strictness... And, and, was, and was zealous towards God as you all are today. I persecuted this way to the death, binding and delivering into prisons both men and women. In chapter 6, Paul, before King Agrippa, gives a, his testimony again. And there in chapter 26, verse 10, he says to, to King Agrippa, he says, This I also did in Jerusalem, and many of the saints I shut up in prison having received authority from the chief priests, and when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. Paul says, I wanted them dead. When it came time to vote whether or not to execute a Christian, he said, my vote was kill them. That's how zealous he was in this mission of persecution. In verse 11, chapter 26, he says, and I punished them often in every synagogue and compelled them to blaspheme and being exceedingly enraged against them, against them, I persecuted them even to foreign cities. Paul was a madman. On a mission. You might say that Paul's role was really not executed. He was really the enforcer. If there ever was such an evil term and. In, in, in that time, he was the evil enforcer against the church. He didn't actually do the executing, but boy, he took great pleasure in the authority that he had by the Sanhedrin, the letter that he carried, basically said he could go to the synagogues of any town, any city, and say, listen, if there are any Christians here, turn them over to me. I'll bind them up, take them back to Jerusalem, and you'll never have to worry about them again. So Saul's murderous intent, as he left Jerusalem, on a journey to Damascus because, you see, he had heard that there was a great breakout of Christians up there. We know about it because Philip was instrumental in that. And so in verse 3, you see, as he, as he journeyed, he came near Damascus and suddenly a light shone around him from heaven. 
In Acts chapter 22, verse 3, Paul goes on to say that this happened at noontime. Why is that significant? If you're going along at night and it's pitch dark as it would be in those days, any kind of light would almost appear bright against the, the backdrop of, of stark darkness. But, but at noonday, when the sun is at its peak, and you're riding along and it's bright and sunny, and then all of a sudden there's a, a, a superior light that, that shines upon you. And in, in some parts of the scripture, Paul says it was as, as if it, he was in the spotlight. It was beaming directly down on him. Let me tell you something. Paul's murderous intent was met with Jesus' glorious descent. And that's what he's telling us here. You see it here in verse 3. As he journeyed, he came near Damascus, and suddenly a light shone around him from heaven. Then he fell to the ground, and he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Not only did Jesus encounter him in this great light phenomena that certainly got his attention, in fact, we'll find out later, it absolutely blinded Saul. He couldn't see. He's blinded by this brilliant light, which I would simply submit that was probably just a a portion of the Shekinah glory of the resurrected, ascended Christ who chose to intersect Saul on the road to Damascus. And it was Jesus, folks. Jesus encountered Saul of Tarsus. He didn't send Gabriel. He didn't send some other heavenly being. Here in his great glory, he encountered Saul because he had a purpose. He had a higher calling. He had a nobler calling on Saul's life. And he was determined to hijack the devil's henchman. That's significant, folks. Because even in that right there, you see a stark contrast between God, Christ, and Satan. Because literally what you're going to see transpiring in the, in the, the subsequent verses, you're going to see Jesus, the ascended Lord, hijack, snatch out of Satan's hand his number one henchman. That's what he did. He stole him, took him, took possession of him. Now you say, well, why is that such a big deal, Pastor? Because I want you to understand that Jesus, the good shepherd in John chapter 10, made a point of telling his followers, and that would be you and me. He says about us, he says, I give them eternal life. And they, us, will never perish. But listen to this. Neither shall anyone snatch them out of my hand. Jesus can take anybody he wants at any time right out of the hands of the devil and the devil can't do anything about it. Praise God! He snatched me out of the hands of the devil and if you're a Christian, he snatched you out of the hand of the devil. But guess what? Satan can't touch you. You're safe and secure. And when the Son of Almighty God who created the stars and the planets and the constellations and all of heaven and earth and the sovereign ruler of all says, no one takes you out of my hand. No one takes you out of his hand. And so Jesus intercepts Saul on his way to Damascus. We see the confrontation. But as we read further, you'll see what is obviously 
a conversion. Because in verse 5, he says, Saul says, and, uh, Who are you, Lord? I think Saul knew this, this is some manifestation of God. And folks, do I just offer for your consideration? Do you remember when Stephen was stoned outside of the gates of Jerusalem or city walls of Jerusalem? Do you remember when Stephen was being stoned how under the powerful presence of the Spirit of God upon him, he had a a divine heavenly vision. And he said, even as they were casting the stones that would take his life, Stephen says, I see Jesus the Christ standing at the right hand of God the Father. Now let me tell you something. Most of those zealous Jews were so intent on killing Stephen I believe that just simply made them mad. But I would submit for you to understand today that Saul of Tarsus, a real trained man in the Word of God, as a Jew, heard what Stephen said. I believe it haunted him. I believe it haunted him every waking second that he lived after that. And I believe when he encountered this brilliant light on the road to Damascus and he just simply said, Who are you, Lord? In the back of his mind, I believe he was thinking, Could it be? Could it be? Could it be this Jesus that Stephen was talking about? Well, Jesus settled that for him. <laughs> he says, it's, I'm Jesus. The one you're persecuting. You notice what Jesus said? Why, why are you persecuting me? Saul could have said, but wait a minute. Wait a minute, Jesus. I'm just after the church. But you've got to understand the theology of the Bible. There is no separation between the head of the church, Christ, and the body. You injure the body, you're injuring the head. You persecute the body, you're persecuting me. And Jesus said to Saul, listen buddy, you're not just persecuting a bunch of, of, of dedicated Christians. You're persecuting the very Son of God. And I believe at that moment... Something wonderful, something great, something dynamic, something miraculous began to happen in the life of one Saul of Tarsus. Verse 6, so he trembling and astonished said, Lord, he's not speaking in general to the God of the universe. Why? Because he knows who's talking to him. He's talking to Jesus now. There's been a radical 180 degree turn in the thinking and the convictions of one Saul of Tarsus because now, broken down, blind as a bat and on his knees on the ground before the Son of God, he says, Lord! What do you want me to do? And the Lord says, Arise. Go into the city. And you will be told what you must do. John Polhill in his commentary on the book of Acts said, It would be hard to overestimate the significance of Paul's conversion, not only for the subsequent narrative of Acts, but for the history of, the, of Christianity as a whole. Folks, ladies and gentlemen, I believe with all my heart, this Saul of Tarsus, who would later become the, the Apostle Paul, never got over his conversion. Never got over his conversion. 
And for that matter, I pray I'd never get over my conversion. Not as dramatic as Paul, not as dramatic as as John Newton or Michael Franzese, but still, what happened in my life when Christ reached out to me to snatch me from the hands of the devil and gave to me faith to believe upon Him and extended the grace of God so that I went from being a a citizen of the kingdom of darkness to become a a citizen of the kingdom of God. That was a miracle too. Paul says in Philippians chapter 3, talking about this In Philippians chapter 3, verse 4, he says about himself, Though I also might have confidence in the flesh, I, if anyone else thinks he may have confidence in the flesh, I more so circumcised the eighth day of the stock of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, of Hebrew of Hebrews, concerning the law of Pharisee, concerning zeal, persecuting the church, concerning the righteousness which which is in the law, blameless. But... What things were gained to me, these things I counted lost for Christ. But indeed, I also count all things lost for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things. Count them as rubbish that I may gain Christ and be found in Him, not having my own righteousness which is from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which is from God by faith, that I may know Him and the power of His resurrection and the fellowship of His suffering, being conformed to His death, if by any means I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. Listen, this is the same man that was breathing threats and wanting to eliminate the church. And now, now because of the powerful conversion that God uh, transpired in his life, Paul says, there's nothing else in all the world more important to me than Jesus. And Paul had accomplished much by the world's standards. But he says it's all like a pile of dung. Pardon the expression. Take it anything, anything, all of that stuff, all of the accolades, all of the accomplishments, all of the degrees, all that I all that I've had in this world. He said, take it, just give me Jesus. What about you? What difference has Christ made in your life? What has transpired in you that would be evidence of a genuine? conversion experience I believe when Paul was struck down on the road to Damascus blind I believe that was just Christ wanting to teach him an object lesson an experiential object lesson I believe the Lord wanted this great well trained highly astute and revered Pharisee of the law this scholar of the law to see that he, like his friend Nicodemus, who came to, to the Lord at night, you may recall, I, wanted, I think Jesus wanted this, this Pharisee of Pharisees to see that he was walking in spiritual blindness. And so were we, ladies and gentlemen. So were we. There's convincing evidence of Saul's conversion. Just right there in verses... 6 and 7 and beyond when Jesus tells him what to do he does it he's submitting his spirit to the Lord and he's following the Lord he's following the Lord he goes, he goes into Damascus he, he doesn't walk on his own because as I said he was blind 
And his companions led him. In verse 7, And the men who journeyed with him stood speechless, hearing a voice, but seeing no one. Then Saul arose from the ground, and when his eyes were opened, he saw no, no one. But they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And he was there three days without sight, and neither ate nor drank. Yet he, he yielded. He would later yield to baptism. Obediently, evidence of a true conversion. Isn't that amazing? His enemies would become his friends. His supposedly friends were now going to be his enemies. The church that he was so determined to persecute and to execute, now with his very life, he would be defending. The gospel that he sought to squash, he would now proclaim in public, no, and it would cost him his very life. My goodness, there's evidence that there was a genuine conversion in Saul's life. Let me ask you, brother, sister, what evidence is there in your life of a genuine conversion to Jesus Christ? You say, well, but that was Paul. That was Paul. No, no. The scripture says in 2 Corinthians 5.17, Therefore, if any man is in Christ, he or she is a new creature. A new creature. It says, The old things have passed away. Behold, new things have come. If you have truly chosen Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior and you have received faith to believe upon Him and you have exercised that faith, listen, there will be evidence. I asked a person one time, if you were on trial and the charge was being a Christian, would there be enough evidence to convict you? Could there be enough of your friends and family who would, who would take the stand and actually give testimony to see that there is indeed unrefutable evidence that so-and-so was indeed genuinely converted? evidence in a true conversion. It was in Saul's life. There is evidence in the life of a genuine believer, first and foremost, beginning with genuine repentance from sin. Don't come to me and, and tell me how much you love the Lord and how you praise the Lord and, and it's a known fact that you're still engaging knowingly, unrepentantly in sin. Something is wrong. There's not been a conversion. Listen, there are other observable changes that give evidence of a genuine conversion. What's your attitude towards the things of God? Do you get excited about opening up the Word of God? Do you give preference to spending time in prayer, talking to the Lord and letting Him speak to you? Do you look forward to opportunities to gather with other believers that you might worship the Lord and lift up His name and praise Him? Does it excite you that you might have the opportunity to give to God's kingdom causes to further and advance the kingdom? Listen, are these evidences that are manifest in your life? Do people look at you and say, there's no doubt this person has been converted? I'll tell you what's plaguing the church today. It's a phenomenon called cultural Christianity and, and decisionalism where you have superficial so-called believers. Listen, there are no such thing as carnal Christians, ladies and gentlemen. Either you're carnal or you're Christian. 
But I'll tell you what is rampant and filling up the pews of churches across this nation are people that I would classify as carnal church members. They claim to be followers of Christ. They claim to have had a a genuine conversion experience. Their name is on the church roll, but under close examination, their attitudes, their actions, their habits, their relationships and all, it says, I'm still a sinner. And we ought to take note. It's a beautiful thing that God does. And it's amazing how Christ uses another humble, faithful saint to do the work that he wants to do in Saul's life. Verse 10. Now there was a certain disciple at Damascus named Ananias. And this is not the Ananias who spoke half-truths in chapter 5 and was killed. and He didn't come back to life. This is just another Ananias. Okay? He's a faithful man, as you'll see. And to him the Lord said in a vision, Ananias, and he said, Here I am, Lord. So the Lord said to him, Arise and go to the street called Straight. By the way, that street's still there in Damascus. If you want to go find it, it's just a little bit north of what the original street was, but it's still there. It's still straight. Got columns on it. You can spend all your money on trinkets and all kinds of paraphernalia. But anyway, a street called Straight, and inquire at the house of Judas. Clarification, not Judas Iscariot. This is another Judas for one calls Saul of Tarsus. For behold, he is praying. Look how, look how absolutely detailed the Lord describes to, to Ananias. He didn't just say, look, fan out through the northern part of Damascus and see if you can find this guy that was called Saul. <laughs> Tells him exactly where to go. What street to go on. Hey, listen, that was before the day of GPS, ladies and gentlemen. Go to this street. Go to this house. This man. You'll find this man Saul, you'll find him there. You'll find him blind, but you'll find him praying. See, Jesus sees all things. Do you all believe that? Do you believe that our Lord is an all-seeing, all-knowing God? There's nowhere you can ever go that you'll be out of His presence, and there's nothing ever, ever that you can do that He doesn't see. He saw saw Saul. He's watching, had his eye on him the whole time. In verse 12, And in a vision he has seen a man named Ananias coming in and putting his hand on him so that he might receive his sight. So Ananias, he knows you're coming. Just as I'm giving you a vision, I'm giving Saul a vision. It's all coordinated. Look how absolutely coordinated and orchestrated Paul's, Saul's conversion and commissioning is. Then Ananias answered, Lord, I've heard many, uh, from many about this man how much harm he has done to your saints in Jerusalem. And, and, here, he is, and here he has authority from the chief priest to bind all who call on your name. You know, and, and, and listen, Ananias is just reflecting what you and I would say. If we were in his shoes, uh, you want me to go and be a welcoming party for the guy that was, who's on his way here to arrest me? And all the other Christians? Just, just want to check, Lord. Just want to make sure that we're talking about the same guy, right? So don't get pious and say, oh, I would have gone right on over. Say, where is Saul? No. Not if you thought this dude could drag you down to Jerusalem, put you before the Sanhedrin, and have you arrested and tried and possibly executed. Uh-uh. You would have had some hesitation. So let's be fair, okay? Let's be fair down to nice. But the Lord said to him in verse 15, Go, for he is a chosen vessel of mine. To bear my name before Gentiles, kings, and children and the children of Israel. For I will show him how many things he must suffer for my name's sake. You see what he's doing? He's telling Ananias, This is I'm going to commission this man. 
Not only have I confronted him, not only have I converted him, but listen, Ananias, it's real, pay attention, pay attention, listen. I've got a mission for this man. A mission that I've never given to any other man. So get it right. When you go to him, get it right because you're going to commission this man on, on my behalf. You're going to give him an assignment that will just blow your mind. And so, verse 17, and Ananias went his way and entered the house and laying his hand on him. I love this. It's because, see, he's Pentecostal. Brother Saul. He could have stood at a distance and said, uh, Mr. Saul of Tarsus, I'm here on behalf of the Lord. He's got, got his eye on the door. But when, when the Lord sends you, ladies and gentlemen, don't balk, don't back up. You go all the way. Ananias walked in that room because he knew he was on a mission from the Lord. He put his hands upon Saul's head and he said, Saul, brother, Saul. In other words, what did Ananias say right there? He says, listen, you're not the man who left Jerusalem. We know that. It's, I know that. In fact, you who used to be my arch enemy, you're my brother. I'm your brother. Folks, can y'all see the glorious miracle of what the Lord has done just right there? Whew! I can get excited. I want to be barbecue or something, but I lost my craving. Y'all pray for me. Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road as you came has sent me that you may receive your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Immediately there fell from his eyes something like scales and he received his sight at once. Not only physically, but did Saul see? Listen, his eyes were open. His spiritual eyes were open. Listen, this man who was so blinded that he was willing to persecute the Son of God, the church of Jesus Christ. Listen, suddenly his spiritual eyes are being opened to see the kingdom of God, to see the Son of God, to see the, the body of Christ like he'd never seen it. Folks, let me tell you something. He was a changed man. As I look back in my life at the time when the Lord got a hold of old Charlie Martin, let me tell you something. He not only turned me around, set me on the right course, but let me tell you something, He opened my eyes. I thought I knew what the world was. I thought I knew what life was. I thought I knew what the important things in life was. Listen, I used to be self-centered, selfish, greedy. Listen, uh, oh, everything was about cynical. Oh, cynical. And the Lord got a hold. Praise God. Thank you, Jesus. The Lord got a hold of me just like He got a hold of Saul. And He dropped the scales from old Charlie Martin's eyes and I began to see through the eyes of Jesus. Folks, let me tell you something. I was a changed man. The Lord made me into a man that I never... Listen, I would never be the father that I've been. And I'm not perfect by no stretch of imagination. You can ask Pastor Tim about that. But listen, he made me a husband that I never could have been. He made me a Christian. I couldn't have been a Christian without Christ coming into my life. That's what the Lord did. And He set Saul on a new mission now. He commissioned him following, immediately following his conversion because of this radical transformation. 
And there was evidence, there was fruit to, to, to show evidence of that. How do we know that? Because after that, look at verse 19. And when he had received food, he was strengthened. Then Saul spent some time, some, some days with the disciples, had Damascus. Listen, you understand? His family has changed. He's got a new family now. They're called Christians. The people he came to arrest, he's eating dinner with. He's fellowshipping. But listen, God, listen, there's more evidence. There's more evidence that God has got this man set on a powerful course. Because in verse 20 it says, immediately he preached Christ, the Christ in the synagogues, that, that he is the Son of God. Then all who heard were amazed and said, Is this not he who destroyed those who called on the name on this name in Jerusalem and has come here for that purpose so that he might bring them bound to the chief priest? But Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who dwelt in Damascus, proving that this Jesus is the Christ. It's like having a nuclear warhead that your enemy has aimed at you and shot towards you and it has the capacity to obliterate you to smithereens and you somehow get the power to turn that baby around and shoot it back towards the enemy. Listen, the very secret weapon that Satan had intended to absolutely obliterate the church, Jesus Christ, by the power of His glory, turned Him around, turned Him around and aimed Him back at the very Jews who were seeking to destroy the church. And let me tell you, there's never been a more powerful weapon for the gospel of Jesus Christ than old Saul of Tarsus because he was gifted in the law. He was a sharp man. He knew how to debate. He knew how to handle the word of God. He knew the history of his people and he now now knew Jesus. Nothing short of a miracle. That's why he could say in Romans 1.16 I am not ashamed of the gospel for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone who believes, first to the Jew and then the Gentile. Paul says, to his dying day, he says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. Do to me what you must, but I am not ashamed of the gospel. Listen, God's got a plan for every one of us. It may not be as dramatic as Paul's, but I promise you, he has a purpose in saving you. He has a purpose in confronting you and and changing you, converting you. He's calling you to serve Him and to be faithful to Him and to carry on His great work. And every one of us has a commission. We know in Matthew 28, verses 18 through 20, Jesus said, Go! He's not just talking to the apostles. He's talking to every born-again believer that has been converted and has a commission. He says, Go! And make disciples of all the world. We have the power of the Holy Spirit just like the, the, the early believers did. The same Holy Spirit. Acts chapter 1 verse 8. Jesus says you will receive power when the Spirit comes upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and both in Judea and Samaria and even to the remotest part of the earth. What about you? What about you? Have you been confronted by the living Lord, resurrected Savior, Jesus Christ? Have you had a confrontation with Him? Has it brought you to a point of faith that upon receiving grace from God, you chose to turn your life over to Jesus Christ and to follow Him faithfully? If you are here today and you've not had such a confrontation, you have not experienced such a dynamic, spiritual, miraculous conversion. Now I'm just talking about 
this fact that Christ comes into your heart. You don't have to see lightning, you don't have to hear thunder, the earth doesn't have to shake under you, but the fact is, has Christ Jesus changed you? Radically and wonderfully. If you answer no to that, then God may be speaking to your heart today. The same resurrected Christ that confronted Saul of Tarsus, His Spirit is here today. If if it's His will that you become a child of God, I promise you, dear friend, He won't let you leave here in peace. He will trouble your soul. He will confront you and confront you until you come to your spiritual senses and repent of your sins and choose to follow Christ by faith and to make Him the Lord and Master of your life, and then you will experience this powerful, eternal conversion experience. I encourage you today, if you're not saved, if you don't live with the assurance of knowing that you belong to the Lord and that your home is in heaven for eternity when you leave this earth, if God is speaking to your heart, I urge you to listen to Him. I urge you to yield to His Holy Spirit and to reach out by faith and accept Jesus Christ. Nobody's twisting your arm. Do you understand you can't be saved unless God chooses you? Do you understand that? Jesus said in John 6, No one receives me except the Father draws them. Count it a joy. Count it a privilege if your heart is being stirred today to come to Christ. It's not by your merit. It's not by your works. It's not because of anything you've done, given, or could possibly do. It's all by the wonderful, amazing grace of God. And the beautiful thing is, you don't have to clean your act up. You don't have to put put your life on hold and say, well, look, I'm going to go get some things straightened up, get some relationships taken care of, you know, give all my possessions to the poor, and I'll come back and I'll get this thing of salvation done. No, no, don't do that, friend. Do you understand? God took Saul just as he was. Right there on the side of the road. Took him right there. And converted him. And commissioned him. You let Christ come into your heart first. He'll take care of what He needs to take care of in getting you where He wants you to be. He'll take you just as you are if you come by faith under His grace.